It's a genuine delight, as we've already noted today, to be able to come together as, the, as we are at this point. As Brother Ted mentioned the announcements, we are blessed with visitors, and certainly we appreciate your presence, as we do our regular membership, of course. Thankful for each of us to be able to come together today with the blessing of God, the capability of health, and the beautiful things that surround us. As we open the Word of God and turn our attention to some of the things found therein, Perhaps a brief word of, again, appreciation for all those who contributed to the success of yesterday, those who participated in the preparation, and many days went into that, those who participated yesterday in the final matters of setup. Indeed, it was a tremendous activity for the cause of sharing with younger plastic minds some of the more pressing and eternal matters to, for them to consider. And it seems the reaction was ever so positive. Of course, the events of recreation and the nice fellowship afterward only heightened the activities of the day. Again, let us say on behalf of the elders and all of the membership alike that we appreciate the presence and certainly the contributing efforts of each and every one. In John 8, verse 32, the text that was just read in our hearing a moment earlier, that statement that so easily rests upon our mind concerning a subject known as the truth. Ye shall know the truth, our Lord said, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus very clearly made reference to, in fact, this five-letter entity known as the truth. Might we this morning devote some attention to considering one aspect of that that sometimes bypasses our thinking, so much so that it's easy to forget it until we are in a position in which it again comes directly before us. For the opening segment of the lesson, could I at least beg of you to consider one of the aspects of the truth that is so very pertinent and so very powerful? This opening slide that I've shown you considers that as you and I think about the nature of the truth, it is such that one might question about those that subscribe to it, those who in fact hear of it. May I ask this question? Does the truth depend upon who is proclaiming it? Does the truth depend upon who is hearing it? Does the truth depend upon where it is presented? Does the truth depend, in fact, on other circumstances, be it nature of where it's located? Time frame in which it's presented? Those are grand questions. There are many subjects, for example, that youngsters may study in school that vary by virtue of culture. One culture perhaps subscribes to a given type of dress, but in another culture they choose not to dress that way. My question might well be then, concerning the truth, does it vary from one place or one time to another? Does it vary depending on who is the spokesman? Does it vary upon where it's presented? Might I suggest one of the things that might be a good idea or example to keep in mind would be one, that comes based on John 8:32 in the following form. What about mathematics, for example? You and I easily appreciate that our youngsters in school are taught that three times four is 12. How should a teacher respond if a child says 10, 7, 11, 8, 21, 37? And the list could go on basically for infinity thereafter, could it not? The teacher, in fact, seems to appreciate that there is a correct answer and that there's also a host of incorrect ones. 
the teacher considers that she or he has a role to play to encourage that youngster to understand the correct answer and to be able to present it at all points in life thereafter when that might well be requested. That kind of idea maybe sets the stage also in this way. We've noted, Jesus said there is an absolute truth. Ye shall know what the Lord said, the truth. Not a truth, not something that might be framed as truth. He said there is the truth, and it can be known. Maybe that leads to the following thoughts as well. So far in our consideration of those things, we seem to have been able to see that truth transcends seemingly what the Lord said, position, time, or place. Isn't it that way in mathematics as well? I mentioned that as an example. We noted that that teacher instructs the child regarding that answer. Suppose the child says, well, I think the answer is 13. Does it matter what the child thinks in that regard? The teacher does not say, well, if that's what you think, I guess that'll be all right. If that's what you believe, I suppose that'll do for today. In fact, the teacher would be doing less than his or her duty if he or she did not attempt to encourage the child that their answer is not correct. Truth, you see, is a very special and pertinent and compelling thing. Perhaps we can ask it another way. The child's preference didn't make any difference. What about the teacher's preference? What if one of our local school systems hired someone and it was her strong or his strong belief that three times four should be taught as 14? I'd submit to you it wouldn't be very long before the school board would learn about this. And if she didn't correct her thinking, she or he would be dismissed. And for very good reason. You see, even what she thinks doesn't make any difference. There is an absolute truth regarding this matter, and if she or he teaches anything else, there's a problem. Maybe yet another perspective. Does the position matter? Suppose here in Putnam County, children are taught that three times four is 12. What, if, what else, though, might be said if in Clay County, they're taught that three times four is 16? Do we begin to see a problem? Does it matter where you're located? May I even suggest that it doesn't matter even if you're in America. Countries around the world, though they speak a different language, it may be German or Chinese or Russian or a host of others, still three times four is twelve. There is never any allowance for any other answer to that question. Perhaps finally, what about time? Is three times four twelve tomorrow? Will it be that way next week? What about next year? Ten years from now if the world shall stand. Isn't it true that you and I have just briefly appreciated that with regard to mathematics, this matter of three times four being 12 is independent of teacher, it's independent of position, it's independent of time, and furthermore, it is independent of even student preference. Truth is that precise, isn't it? As we turn our attention to a matter spiritual in character, what about the truth the Lord made mention of? Could the same be said of that truth? Is it still the same regardless of where one's located? Regardless of, in fact, the preferences of the individual? Regardless of the specific approaches of those who teach? Does the truth of the Lord depend on any of those things? You and I should be tremendously thankful that it does not. 
The truth doesn't depend upon me. If the truth went no deeper than the intellectual capabilities and reasoning of a man, the truth is not very deep. It's incredibly shallow, and it is subject to the whims and failures and fancies of the human tendencies. Truth goes far deeper than that. Furthermore, it doesn't depend on the preferences of those who hear. Someone may be outraged. I don't believe it, though I read that in the Word of God, friend. It doesn't matter. If that's what the Bible says, that's the truth of God. And you and I would be wise to bend our stubborn wills to openly and freely submit our lives to it in every aspect and in every regard. Furthermore, it doesn't depend, as we've noted, on preferences of student or teacher. It doesn't depend on position either. What's true in Jackson County or Putnam County or Clay County, God's truth is true everywhere. He gave the same book to everybody. Those who live in another country, though the culture is different, language is different, tendencies of cultural lifestyles vary, God's truth does not. It is as fundamental and as absolute as 3 times 4 is 12. All are expected to be subject to it. Lastly, it doesn't depend on time either. If God allows our world to stand, our children will need the truth of this book ever much as we will. And those of a hundred generations from now will still stand at the foot of the same truth. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus said, ye shall know the truth. Isn't it then vital that you and I know what this book teaches? To know the truth that can make men free. That nature of truth perhaps leads us to see in regard to already the things today. We know there are many individuals that look upon this book differently. They see it as teaching things that vary in one way or another, perhaps by place, perhaps by individual. But notice, the truth doesn't vary by any of those things. Let's look at just a few examples that perhaps lead us on our way to look at four examples of where the truth can cause at least mental strain in the mind of some because they see a problem and are unwilling from the nature of what God has revealed to bend their will to what God has stated. Here's the first one that you and I can consider. The world in which you and I live is a world that seems so openly accepting of a variety of things. And among those things which are so openly accepted are varieties of presented, quote, truth. You believe what you see the Bible is saying. I'll believe what I see it is saying. We'll both be happy and end at the same place. It's so often what you and I are told. That would seem to impress upon us then that in their minds at least, truth can be looked at in a variety of ways. It's different from one person to the next. Let's revisit Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. In that fantastic text, Paul, very near the opening of the Galatian letter, impressed upon the mind of these Galatian churches the following fact, a fact that they needed very powerfully to have in their thought process. Though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul, how many gospels are there? And thus, to the Galatians, how many Gospels are there? Is it such that there's a multiplicity of Gospels and individuals are free to accept any one that they like, the one that is the highest upon their preference list? We noted earlier that truth doesn't depend on convenience. 
It doesn't matter if it's convenient to me or to you or not. God's truth is the way it is. Paul said there's one gospel. And these Galatians, to that point, had subscribed to various and sundry false concepts and false ideas. Notice Paul didn't say, well, since you believe that way, that will do, I guess. He urged at length through six rather powerful chapters to help them see that what they had been taught by these false teachers was not the truth of God. And furthermore, that they needed at once to subscribe to the things that God had revealed. Notice, truth didn't depend on what they preferred. It didn't even depend on what they'd been taught. There were these teachers who were trying to teach them that one must be circumcised or that one must subscribe to the old law of Moses in order to be saved, namely those Gentiles. Paul said, Galatians 6.15, Circumcision availeth nothing, neither uncircumcision. Notice, he tried to correct then their misunderstandings. The things that they may have thought were truth really were not. Our opening lesson then in regard to this power of the fact there's one gospel. Every person is subject to the same one. As you and I then openly read it, doesn't that harmonize beautifully with the text of Ephesians 4 verse 5? Where on that occasion Paul said there's one faith. Not two, not half a dozen, one. The notion then that there's one gospel, that there's one faith, is a reality that has now stood for almost 2,000 years. And friends, shall it not stand till the end of time? There shall never be a competing gospel, for Paul says if anyone, including even an angel, were to preach any other gospel than this one, let him be accursed. Notice, even angels in heaven can't change this gospel. It is founded that solidly. It is founded that certainly, and it's founded that surely. No wonder it was stated in Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. No human can change it. No angel can change it. It is founded on the bedrock truth of the eminence of the mind of God, and as such... It is ultimately one of those matters presented at judgment in my life and yours shall be judged in accordance to it. How closely has our life matched it? Have we obeyed it? The reality of that means of truth has been a stumbling block for so very many, as we noted earlier, because they think, well, Dad and Mom didn't see it that way. My grandparents didn't see it that way. And so I'm not going to see it that way either, friend. Notice it doesn't matter, though it may not be the best thing to think about, that granddad and grandmom didn't obey that. But you still are subject to it. And at judgment, you'll give answer for whether or not you subscribed individually to the teaching of the truth. That's what the truth is all about, isn't it? It doesn't depend thus on where one is or who one's family history may involve. All of us are subject to the same truth. But perhaps a second example concerning also how the truth for some causes such great mental strain. Notice this one as well. In the second place, there seems to be in our world a rather extreme aversion to obedience. And for many of the same reasons that we have noted, at least in passing earlier, I want to do what I'd prefer to do. Why must I obey or submit to the things that I don't seemingly see an agreement with? 
Can't I just mentally believe Jesus is the Son of God? And isn't that enough? Shouldn't God be satisfied with that? I think that's sufficient, and so that's all I'm going to do. Friend, as we've learned earlier in regard to truth, does it ultimately matter what you think? Does it ultimately matter that your preference is one way or another? On Pentecost, when Peter so bravely and powerfully stood in the midst of a whole host of Jews and preached that Jesus Christ is the Son of God presently now, and that you put him to death, but that God raised him from the dead. He ascended to the Father and now sits at the right hand of God, reigning over spiritual Israel. Is it not true that thankfully about 3,000 of them responded in faith and were baptized, Acts 2.41? But notice what Peter said. When they cried, men and brethren, what shall we do? It was Peter who by inspiration replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In the Greek, the verb tense is imperative. Imperative in the sense that it's necessary. Peter left no options. We can easily appreciate, no doubt, that there were those who were thus convicted in their heart, touched by what Peter had said, and as that sermon poured forth to them that they had shed the innocent blood of God's Messiah, some of them responded in faith. They were pleasing to God. They obeyed what God said for them to do. Hasn't the message of the Scriptures, in a way, from opening chapter of Genesis to closing chapter of Revelation, been a lesson about man's need to submit to God's commandments? When God told Noah to build the ark, it wasn't Noah's place to question, well, God, I have a better suggestion. God, I think there's another way. Why don't you limit this flood and just let me and a few others go up to a high mountain and let that be good enough? 120 years is too long to work on this ark. Noah didn't respond that way. Genesis 6.22 simply says this, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. He simply did what God said for him to do. Those on Pentecost had done the same. They did what God said for them to do. The same thing needs to be said and done by you and me as well. Not to try to argue with God. That's an argument you and I will never win. Wasn't it true even in Acts 5, Gamaliel, when there was that tumult or that uprising, that degree of consideration in that chapter, even he said, if this thing be of God, ye cannot fight against it. The truth doesn't depend, you see, on what I prefer or what you think. You and I must be baptized in order to be saved. In 1 Peter 3.21, that tremendous remark near the close of that chapter, Peter said, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Notice, baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The necessity of obedience to God's will. Jesus gave us one vivid perspective on that in Matthew chapter 7. In verses 21 and following of that chapter, Jesus, in fact, gave what shall be a picture of the judgment. And in that picture, this is what he said. He said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, 
Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Verse 21, notice, many, Jesus said, will say, Lord, Lord. But notice, he says, I never knew you. They thought they knew him, but he did not know them. What was the point? They hadn't subscribed to the truth. God is a God of truth, Deuteronomy 32, 4. A statement later echoed by Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. The reality of the matter is, when you and I subscribe to the truth, you and I thus are known by him and can receive all the spiritual blessings in store for those in Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 3. This second observation then about an aversion to obedience is such a sadness, such a tragedy. For is it not still true in Hebrews 5, verses 89? Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto who, Hebrew writer? All them that obey him. How awful it would be to stand before God at judgment, having failed to obey the initial principles of the gospel. Especially the case that if you've heard sermons where you've been encouraged to obey and the gospel plan of salvation has been set before you and you've read it, but for one reason or another, you never obeyed it. Friend, that would be a more horrible fate than I am able to describe. Notice the truth, though, is the truth. It's what the scriptures teach. Maybe in the third place, Another matter of truth that has caused no little amount of mental strain in the mind of some. A subject that is presented by our Savior in the strongest of languages. It concerns the matter of divorce. Well, you and I well know again that cultural, culture has plasticized our thinking to where so many think that as wonderful as marriage is, it can be terminated for virtually any reason and even for no reason at all. All one needs to do is secure the services of a lawyer and enter into the court system, and it's done. The marriage is over. Then you're free to remarry anybody at any time, any place you wish. That's what our world prefers to think, isn't it? That particular idea has so ingrained itself that frequently we even see those who will advertise as a means of profession the capability of accomplishing that with relative ease. That can but bring great sadness to God. For in the Bible, are we not in a position of seeing that the truth presents marriage far higher than that? Presents it so specially. It is, in fact, of divine origin. No mind of man ever thought up marriage. It came from a far higher being than that. In Genesis chapter 2, even yet before sin had ever entered the world, God fashioned that man, made Adam, created him, if you will. But notice, it wasn't good for the man to be alone, Genesis 2.18. And at that point, God, with initiation, caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam, took a rib from his side and fashioned a woman, brought her to him, and God married them. On the occasion of that marriage, that fantastic statement that closes Genesis 2, Man leaving his father and mother, cleaving to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. 
that realization hasn't changed. And we know that because the Lord quoted that text in Matthew 19, and in his quotation of it, he did not change it. In fact, he reminded those of his day that man had often desired to change it. Moses had written that bill of divorcement, in fact. But in so doing, remember, the Lord said from the very beginning, it was not so. The idea then that marriage is one woman for one man for life is that idea set forth from the mind of God and the one and only scriptural cause for divorce ever revealed in the truth of God is in the ninth verse of Matthew 19. And in that text, we still see the Savior say this. When those of his day ask him the question about divorce, and does that not also teach us that the issue that may rest as a good question in the mind of many today was also a question 20 centuries ago. Notice the question in verse 3. Shall a man divorce his wife for any cause? Notice there were those in that day teaching, well, you can divorce for any reason you want. But there were others who were saying, well, not so. There's only one reason, and it's fornication. And so they asked Jesus his perspective on this matter. In the verses that followed, he first challenged them. Have you not read verse number 4? Notice, he pointed them to where the answer is found. The answer isn't found in law documents of the Supreme Court. It isn't found in law documents of the state of Tennessee. It isn't found, in fact, even in the Constitution of the United States. Wherever truth on that subject is found, it must be found here. And as we've learned earlier today, that means it isn't dependent on what my preference or yours might be. It's not dependent on where or when it may be perceived. God's truth is God's truth. In verse 9, then, of Matthew 19, the Lord made this statement. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whosoever that marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. That was the Lord's statement. For all time and eternity, that's the truth. There are some who have argued that Paul attempted to change that in 1 Corinthians 7. He did not. Paul didn't say anything that contradicted what the Lord said in Matthew 19. In fact, the two, when properly interpreted, are absolutely harmonious. The fact of the matter that we see Jesus saying is then, there is one exception that allows a scriptural divorce. In our land, when we see untold myriads who are entering and finding divorces for other causes. Mustn't that not bring a literal tear, if you will, to the eye of God? For it still is true in Malachi 2.16, God said, I hate divorce. For what does it indicate? It indicates a loving marriage has fallen apart. It indicates that one or the other was unfaithful. It indicates that something has ended that was extremely precious. It's sad that marriage isn't looked upon nearly as often that way as it once was. But yet the truth hasn't changed. May we be dutiful enough to embed within the minds of our youth and those whom we have opportunity to influence the true specialness of marriage and that God's truth can't be changed. Young folks, choose your mate wisely. Choose a person that will help you go to heaven and someone whom you can help to go to heaven too. Choose someone that will be a good husband or wife who will be a good father or mother to your children. 
Choose someone who has the same ultimate objective and mission in life as you do, and that is to be pleasing to God. Don't marry a child of the devil. For as you know from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 17, there's no harmony between Christ and the devil. You're asking for a means of difficulty that will be greatly enhancing your difficulties through this life. The truth that God has revealed us here perhaps leads us to the last one in the remaining time of our study today. The reality of this truth in the three ways we've seen so far maybe points us to this one. Obedience in regard to any character of life, even including the time when perhaps death even approaches. Sometimes you and I have a tendency to think that we need to comfort and we need to extend a hand of great solace to an individual whom we know is not a Christian and yet is so very close to death. I might submit to you that a far greater loving response on our part would be certainly in a way of tactfulness, but to encourage that person. You are about to leave the physical area of this life and enter the bounds of eternity, and you are not ready. Can't I help you learn the gospel, obey it, and to thus leave this life with a smile on your face ready to meet your Savior? Sometimes when you and I appreciate the physical character of life, we approach it in a way that we like to be friendly and extend a means of comfort, and certainly that's not an inappropriate thing at all. But maybe we leave out, at least sometimes, what truly is the most important. But someone might argue, don't upset him or don't upset her. They're at least resting in that hospital bed right now. But would we not be far wiser to at least think, what if they slip from this life unprepared to meet God? Should we not at least offer to them? Maybe we can study a moment with them. Maybe we, by merely a word of exhortation, could help them understand and obey what they've known for years they ought to have done. On that occasion, a family member might say, don't talk to them about that now. Maybe a greater act of love, though, would again be, despite what the family member wishes, can we not speak with them? Well, can't we just have a few minutes with them to try to help them see the greatest need of their life that is yet unfulfilled? The truth, you see, can hurt the mind of those that are unwilling to succumb to it. Perhaps that leads me finally to say in the lesson, in its most basic nature, the truth will never hurt if we will obey it. For it's what's good for us. It's what God intended by His infinite will to make available to the human family. God's wisdom and His knowledge is infinite. Psalm 147, verse 5. And in that infinite presentation of wisdom, may we be wise enough to subscribe to it in every regard and in every way. For the truth doesn't depend on person, doesn't depend on place, doesn't depend on preference, doesn't depend on time. It is the same for each and every one of us. In summary, in conclusion today, maybe we can note this conclusion statement to the lesson that we have studied about the truth this morning. The truth is a fascinating thing. I mentioned mathematics as an example near the outset of the lesson. And frankly, I've always been impressed with the ability of man to understand the truth in that regard. But yet when you present this as true, suddenly it doesn't have the same characteristics. 
There ain't a person that I know of that would say, well, you believe three times four is 15 if you want to, and I'll believe it's 12, and we'll both be fine. But when it comes to this, they'll say, well, you believe baptism's necessary if you want to. I don't think it is. We'll both be fine. What logic is there in that? This is, in fact, a grander truth than is the mathematical one. For this one's founded on the absolute character of the death of the Son of God. May we subscribe to it in love. May we bend our will to be all that God would have it to be in response to the truth. If you haven't obeyed it today, initially, if you are not able to call yourself a Christian because you've been added to the church, Acts 2.47, let today, the 12th of October 2008, be that day. Your spiritual birthday. It'll be a day that you can in a moment rise from this watery grave of baptism behind me. Your sin's gone at that moment. You're as pure and clean as the whitest of snow, pure and clean as a newborn babe, sinless in the sight of God. If that can't be said of you at this, point, at this moment, realize Jesus died that that could happen. And last Lord's Day, we saw two responses to the gospel. If that would be the need of your life today, we'd be honored to watch another, to witness another, to rejoice with another. If you have never then obeyed that gospel initially, Jesus demands that you believe him to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, as we read of in Acts 2, 38. Confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, Acts 8, 37. And be baptized for the remission of your sins. In that act of baptism... Jesus affirmed in Mark 16, verse 16, that it is a requirement. It's demanded. At that point, as you begin your walk with the Savior, have you been faithful? If you have, God bless you for that. Continue to walk in faith. For he, with the Lord at your side, your life is a strong note of power. If you have not been faithful, just as we read of more than once in the New Testament, come back to that first love. Jesus wants you back home. And we could pray on, on your behalf today for the forgiveness for those sins once you repent of them. In that act of repentance, you're turning aside from them and turning back to the Savior. Today, if we could be of help with you in either of these ways, or to pray for your strength, we'd be honored to do it. But we need you to let us know that if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.